0: Well good morning Antioch, so good to see you guys, glad that you're here. My name is Pete, and uh, one of the pastors here, and uh, good to be together. Um, I've been out the last couple weeks, and uh, I'll tell you real quick a little bit about why. Uh, Two weeks ago, I was uh, heading to the coast to speak for a retreat for college students from Western Oregon University, uh, Crew or Campus Crusade and uh, took uh, the family along. Jen and the kids got to come for the weekend, and on the way there, um, we stopped to visit my grandma in Corvallis. And um, here's the backstory: I hadn't seen my grandma in 15 years. Um, and it's complicated, but she had, had essentially cut everybody out of her life uh, as she got older into, uh, into life. And so my wife, Jen, and kids had never met my grandma. Um, She'd been living in LA for the last 50 years ever since she first immigrated here from Latvia in the 50s. And uh, about three weeks ago, she moved to Corvallis. Um, So on Friday, a little over two weeks ago, we stopped, visited my grandma. Two days later, she died. And it was the craziest thing. We were coming back through town from the coast and got to be there with um, my parents and my siblings. I had one brother that uh, flew in from Hawaii to be there for the whole thing. And um, it turned into, like, I don't think you can quite call that a vacation, (laughs) but turned into about three days of just being together as a family. And there was a whole bunch of, like, healing and reconciliation that happened um, between us and... Uh, Ants that was there and that sort of thing, and so um, it's kind of a story where even not right now I'm like not really sure how to tell it, like whether we're <laughs> thanking God for something beautiful that happened or mourning. It, obviously, it's a little bit of all of that, but it's just the simple reality that how oftentimes out of death God brings life, right? And out of pain God brings wholeness, and out of trial God brings healing. And, um, and so for me and my family, it's been a difficult, but a really joyful experience all at the same time. And I know that many of us, whether <clears throat> whatever your story is, whatever your moment in life is, um, that there's this simple invitation that God has for us to, to trust Him, and to walk with Him, and to know that He's good, and that He's with us, and that He's for us, even in life's kind of really difficult, painful moments. And that we have a God who loves to bring about redemption and loves to raise the dead in us and in our world. And so I'm grateful um, for the life God's given us together in Jesus and for the chance to be here together this morning. So we're going to go to the book of Acts chapter 2. And um, we are uh, in a series in the book of Acts entitled Joining Jesus on His Mission, And it's a series we launched right after Easter Sunday, and uh, each week we've been trying to, um, in in the bulletin or in the handout that you get, tell the story of people in our church community who are joining Jesus on his mission in the world, either here in Bend or kind of in our backyard, so to speak, dealing with... Uh, national and social issues around our country, and, uh, of course, across the world in several places as well. And so I hope that you've been paying attention to those stories as they're coming out each week, and I hope that you're finding that they're ordinary, right, that it's just normal people like you and me who have been uh, captivated, captivated by this vision that we get to be part of what Jesus is doing in the world. And it'll literally take a million different forms and expressions in each one of our lives. But the good news is that Jesus has invited us to join him in what he's up to in the world. And so those stories are designed to kind of help inspire and encourage just really organic, ordinary, everyday mission in the lives uh, of our community here. And so um, as we're in the book of Acts, we happen to today... Come to the day that is being celebrated by Christians all around the world, and that is Pentecost Sunday. And um, for a lot of us, um, Pentecost is a word or an event that kind of doesn't mean a whole lot, to be honest. Right? Like we recognize it from the story in Acts 2, if we're familiar with the Bible. But other than that, we don't have a lot of associations. In fact, probably for most of us, we hear Pentecost, we think Pentecostal, and maybe that stirs up some strange experiences for you. I know it does for me. I remember as a 14-year-old, my dad took me to visit a Pentecostal church in town. They had an African guest speaker that night who got up and preached, and then after he preached, this was in the early 90s when there was this Toronto blessing thing going around, if anybody remembers that, people started worshiping through barking like dogs, and making crazy animal sounds, and laughing, and one guy, like, got stuck to the wall, and I'm like, 14 Baptist kid going, oh my gosh, am I in hell, or what happened here? Um, And uh, it turns out there's a lot of great people at that church who I'm friends with today, but for some of us, when we hear Pentecost, we're like, "Uh uh-oh, time for the dog barking and the hysterical laughter. And uh, I hope that this morning I can give us a much bigger context in which to hear that word in. Um, anybody know what the word Pentecost means, literally? It means the 50th day. So you'll recognize the prefix pent from words like what? Pentagon, pentathlon, right? Five-sided figure, a five-event competition. Uh, so literally, Pentecost is the 50th day. So the 50th day after what? What did we celebrate 50 days ago? Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday and then 50 days later, both including Easter and today, is Pentecost. And so for those who are unfamiliar with the church calendar or the Christian calendar, um, it's simply a way that followers of Jesus have been organizing their year around the story of the gospel for many, many years now. And so um, over the last couple of years here at Antioch, we've been starting to engage in some of these observations and celebrations of the Christian calendar. And bet- depending on your church background or upbringing, some of this is really familiar, and for others of us, it's kind of new. But here's just real quickly how the Christian calendar sort of works. At the end of November is the beginning of the season of Advent, which is the four weeks leading up to Christmas. And so Christians have set aside those four weeks of Advent to identify with ancient Israel in the longing for Messiah. It's a time of preparing and a time of waiting, a time of anticipating God's arrival in the world through Christ. And so, for the last couple years, we at Antioch have entered into the season of Advent through an experience we call Advent Conspiracy. And it's a way of trying to enter that story in a way that reflects how that story actually went down. And it's a way of entering Christmas not with an emphasis on consumption, but rather on compassion. And it's been a beautiful and meaningful experience for many of us, I know. And so, The four Sundays or four weeks of Advent lead us to Christmas Eve and then to Christmas, which was when we celebrate, obviously, God's arrival in the world in Christ. Now, traditionally, Christmas is not just one day, but it's how many days? There's a song about it, about partridges and whatnot, right? (laughs) Twelve days of Christmas. So Christians set aside those twelve days to celebrate the Incarnation. Okay, then there's a little break of what's called ordinary time. And again, because you're dealing with weird things like the lunar calendar and stuff like that, uh, a lot of these dates are, th- are different every year. But after Christmas and after a little break in ordinary time, then we move into the season of Lent. And Lent has traditionally begun on Ash Wednesday. Which is kind of a night of repentance, a night of remembering that we are dust and to dust we shall return. And for those 40 days of Lent, we uh, join Jesus on a journey of prayer and fasting and repentance and reflection. Um, a time it's a somber season, a time to reflect on, on Christ's life and ministry, but, but ultimately, it leads us to reflect on his suffering. And his death. So the 40 days of Lent leads us to Good Friday. Um, even before that, Palm Sunday and Monday, Thursday and then Good Friday, which for the last two years we've celebrated together, a time to remember and reflect on Jesus' suffering and death and burial. And then two days later, Easter Sunday, 50 days ago, we gathered here to celebrate that the tomb is empty, that Jesus victoriously was raised from the dead and started this cosmic revolution where God is making all things new and promises to do for all creation what he did for Christ. And so for Christians, that's kind of our Super Bowl. That's our big Sunday that the whole whole season builds towards, if you will, and we celebrated together the, the resurrection of Jesus, and now um, season of Easter goes seven weeks we don 't usually think about the season of Easter, especially after Easter, but uh, that 's how the calendar typically works and it 's supposed to be a season of fast or feasting to follow our season of fasting, which uh, i 'm all in favor of seven weeks of feasting and um, if, if you don't like anything else about the church calendar, like, what's wrong with that? So we should do that. Uh, but it leads up to Pentecost Sunday, which is kind of the end of this story arc. Now, there's a few other uh, days and celebrations throughout the year, but really from the end of November, starting with Advent, all the way through the Christmas season and the Easter season, the whole story kind of wraps up at Pentecost, which is around this time every year, 50 days after Easter. And so, this calendar is how Christians all over the world, from all different denominations and traditions, have organized their lives for most of church history. And so, if we're Christians and this is odd or unfamiliar to us, uh, we're in the minority, historically speaking. Uh, most Christians in most traditions have organized their corporate life, their worship, their seasons even, around the gospel story of Jesus. And now what I love about that is that we have to organize our time around something. And most naturally, at least in our part of the world, it's weather, right? That the seasons change, the weather changes, and so we make plans and rhythms accordingly. Like there's a time to do this and a time to do that. There's a time for the mountain, there's a time for the river. Right? And so, for a lot of us, it's weather. For for many of us with kids in school, the school calendar is kind of the thing that shapes the course of our year. Uh, For others, it's the fiscal calendar, right? Because that's where it kind of really starts and ends. Um, And there's nothing wrong with any of that. And obviously, we'll all engage in that kind of thinking uh, to multiple degrees. But what I love is, what if we actually organized our life and our time around the thing that's the most important to us, around the story of Jesus. And not in some sort of legalistic, weird religious way, but simply saying we want this story, the good news about who Jesus is and what he's done, we want that to actually shape our lives. We want to enter into that story. And so that few ways through Advent, through Good Friday, through Easter, um, many of us are starting to get a taste of that and sort of the rhythm, the cycle, the habit that, that, that is built in. And I think it's a beautiful thing. So uh, you don't have to do it. No, none of us do. But it's, for me, I'm just saying for me, it's become a really meaningful way of thinking through the course of a year and my relationship with Jesus, my walk with God, and also how it affects our life together as a church. And so today, this Sunday, around the world, Christians are celebrating kind of the final day in this liturgical cycle, the day of Pentecost. And um, let's just read the story that Pentecost is, is based on, the Christian holiday of Pentecost, that is, and, uh, and then we'll come back and ask a few questions. So in Acts chapter 2, um, we'll read the first 13 verses, and again, As Ken and I teach this series, we're going all over the place. Hopefully that's okay with you. But um, we're early in the story. Jesus has just ascended back to the Father, bringing humanity with him, uh, so to speak. Positionally, we are now included in Christ. We are with Jesus. And uh, he's promised, he says, don't leave Jerusalem until the gift that I've promised comes to you. Well, in Acts chapter 2 is where that gift is given. So we'll read the first 13 verses, Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Be merciful on me in this next section. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocius, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Okay, we'll stop there. So this is the story where the Christian holiday of Pentecost has its beginnings for us. Um, This isn't the first Pentecost. We'll come back to that in a moment. But just here's the stage being set. In verse 1, there are 120 Christians together in one place. I get that number from just several verses before, verses, uh, verse 1, of, or verse 15 of chapter 1. About 120 Christians in the world. So every single Christian in the world is together in one room. Okay, And that's the setting. If we were to try to do that today, we would need a much bigger room, wouldn't we? Roughly one-third of the world's population, 2.2 billion people would identify as Christian today. So that's part of the story that is happening in Acts, that this little group of 120, somehow now 2,000 years later, makes up a third of the world's population all around the world. It's an crazy thing. It's this crazy thing. And on the day of Pentecost, Jews from all over the known world have come to Jerusalem to celebrate. Now obviously when they celebrate Pentecost, they're not celebrating what we celebrate at Pentecost. We celebrate it as the gift of the Spirit and essentially the founding of the church in many ways. Um, They weren't celebrating that because it hadn't happened yet. It was about to happen, and they didn't know it. What they were celebrating was this ancient Jewish festival called Shavut. Shavut is also known as the Festival of Weeks. And so in ancient Israel, God had given his people several celebrations throughout the year that were big deals. They were pilgrimage celebrations where God invited Jewish people from all over the world to come together for a time of remembering, a time of celebrating. And each one of these celebrations had kind of a different emphasis. But again, it's essentially a picture of a church calendar before before Christ. Like God builds in these rhythms. Don't forget the story. Don't forget who I am. Don't forget what I've done for you when I led you out of Egypt, when I brought you into the promised land, when I sacrificially provided a way for you to be saved. God like builds in these rhythms to the calendar of his people and goes way back. And so Shavuot, or the the festival of weeks, is what the author luke here is talking about in verse 1 of chapter 2 that they were gathering together to celebrate pentecost now for them pentecost was 50 days after what any guesses passover the passover So 50 days after the Passover was the day that God gave the law. This starts to feel like we're in the movie Inception. There's a story within a story within a story. And uh, if you're confused, that's okay. Um, But this is a long story. Like, we didn't invent Christianity. This is a received faith. And so uh, there's times where it's going to be confusing. But originally, 50 days after Passover was this Pentecost feast, this celebration of the day that God gave the law on Mount Sinai. And the Festival of Weeks was a celebration of that day, and this, it was an agricultural celebration. Meaning, as, as a, uh, agrarian, a largely agrarian society, they would base their livelihood essentially off the harvest. And for many of them, that was wheat or, or other kinds of grain. And so at the Festival of Weeks, Jews from all over the world would come to Jerusalem with the first fruits or the first harvest of their wheat fields, and they would bring it as an offering to God. And oftentimes it would be baked into two loaves of bread that are then dropped in the popcorn buckets, so to speak, as they come along. So this whole thing is about wheat. If you were a gluten-free Jew, this is a rough holiday for you, but um, they're literally celebrating their daily bread god's provision and it's an act of gratitude but it's also an act of faith meaning we don't know how big our harvest is going to be but we're still trusting the first of it to god we're giving the first of it to god as an act of gratitude and we're trusting that he is going to be gracious and faithful to meet our needs from this day forward And so that's what's going on in Acts 2. That's why all these Jews from all these impronunciable places are gathered here in Jerusalem. It's for the festival of weeks. Now, when it comes to the Christian holiday of Pentecost, we're celebrating what happens in this story. And for many of us, this is a confusing story, right? You've got wind, you've got fire, you've got people speaking in other languages. And depending on your background, it may be an uncomfortable kind of thing for you to talk about. And so what I find comfort in is that in verse 12, the people who are there are also going, what does this mean? Like they're standing there in the room and they're going, what is going on? What does this mean? That's the question I want to ask this morning with them. And so there's essentially three phenomena that occur, three events that occur in this story. The first is that in verse 2, they hear a sound like the blowing of a violent wind come from heaven and fill the whole, the whole place where they're sitting, okay? So they don't necessarily feel or see the wind, but they hear this sound. Okay? If you've ever been in a place where there's a big storm brewing, a t- tornado or a hurricane or You know, even yesterday we had some violent wind here in Bend, right? Like it's an unmistakable sound and it's kind of this intimidating or uh, uncomfortable sound in a lot of ways. But imagine that sound not just being off in the distance somewhere, but actually coming into this room where you're sitting. That's what we're told is happening here. So what does that mean? That when Jesus gives the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church, it comes in like a sound from heaven. There's probably a lot we, we could say, but I would start with this, that when Jesus gives his spirit to us, it's something that comes in from the outside. When Jesus pours out his spirit on us to empower us for the life and the mission that he's called us to, it's not something that's conjured up from within us, but it's something that's given us from without us okay so this actually confronts a lot of the way our culture tends to think and talk about things like psychology and spirituality that for the most part we live in a culture that says all of our problems are out there and the answer is in here I heard a psychologist recently talking about how a couple decades ago the way she would market her practice is by saying, are you struggling with depression? Are you struggling with anxiety? Then come and receive therapy. And over the last couple decades, her strategy for marketing has been, are you having a hard time getting along with coworkers? Is there a family member who's making you miserable? Do you see the shift? that it used to be that we would recognize that the problem with us is us. And the answer, therefore, must lie without without us. But the culture we live in would say the exact opposite, (coughs) that the world and everybody else is the problem, but the answer to your fulfillment, your joy, your meaning, your hope, and your happiness comes from within you. And the meaning of Pentecost the story of Pentecost reminds us that the answer, so to speak, our hope is a gift that's been given from heaven. That we are the recipients of a kingdom from another world, of the gift of God giving himself to us in Jesus and in the Holy Spirit. And so Pentecost is the day that Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that empowered his life and ministry. Now, we we don't think about this very often, but I think you can make a strong case that when you read through the story of Jesus and his life on earth, that yes, we as Christians affirm that he was 100% God and 100% human, but we're also told repeatedly that Jesus emptied himself of the divine or that he gave it away, he gave it up. He didn't consider, Philippians 2, equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, but he considered it to be something to be given, given away. And so my theology professor at Western, Gary Bashirs, who many of you know, he's spoken here many times, would argue that Jesus lived as a perfectly spirit-filled human being. And his ministry and his life and even the parts that we would call supernatural weren't the result of him being God in the flesh. They were the result of him being a human empowered by the spirit of God. So if you think through many of the divine acts of Jesus in the story of the Gospels, almost every single one of them he wasn't able to do simply because he was God as a man, but because he was a man filled with God. And so other disciples, his disciples, were able to do those same things. And that's what Jesus said. Whatever you've seen me do, you're going to be able to do. Why? Not because we're going to become God, but because God's going to come And fill us. Okay, so let's not get hung up on some of the maybe weird supernatural stuff, for those of us that that's a stumbling block for, but simply a spirit-filled life would be a Christ-like life. A life of grace, a life of generosity, a life of truth, a life of justice and mercy, a beautiful human existence that people of all different faiths and backgrounds would see and recognize in Jesus. That guy knew how to be human, if nothing else. And so when this sound of wind comes from the outside, we're reminded that at Pentecost, we receive the same Holy Spirit who empowered Jesus for his life and ministry. And that we actually are able to become like him. And when he invites us to follow him, we can actually do that. Now, none of us would claim to do it perfectly or anything like that. But he's saying, the same engine that powered me, I've now placed under your hood. So come on, follow me. It's an incredible gift. Second thing. First, they hear the sound of wind. Secondly, they see these tongues of fire. Verse 3, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on them. Now, if you know the story of the Bible in the Old Testament, oftentimes when God's presence becomes tangible on earth, what form does it take? It takes the form of fire. Many times, it's a kind of a ball of, 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 of fire or a cloud of smoke or a pillar of smoke or something like that, that God shows up, makes himself visible in our world, And his people recognize him as fire. Now what oftentimes happens in the Old Testament is that people are warned, don't get too close to the fire or else you'll burn up. Or else you're going to die. And when Moses says, can I see your glory? And God says, I could show you, but then I'd have to kill you. Because nobody could see me and live to tell about it. And what's astounding and what would have captivated the first readers of this story is that the fire of heaven... The spirit of God, his presence descends on earth and when it comes upon this room of people, it doesn't destroy them. It rests upon them. You know that burning bush that sort of just seems to be perpetually burning, like not consumed but just on fire? Like that's crazy and miraculous. That's the picture of what's happening here. That this fire rests upon these Christ followers as they're gathered together. And it doesn't destroy them, but it comforts them, and it empowers them. And so what this means is that instead of, because of what Jesus has done in his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and giving of the Spirit, instead of the holy presence of God destroying us, it now fills us. It comforts us, and it gives us life. And it changes you so that now what was true about Jesus is true about you as well. That the relationship Jesus enjoys with the Father and Spirit has now been given to you as well. The way that Jesus speaks to God as a loving, accepting, affirming Father. The Spirit of God, Paul tells us multiple times, is the one that enables us to cry out as well Abba, Father to enjoy the love and safety of a good, true Father, which is what all of our hearts long for. Now what's crazy is what does that look like? For somebody to essentially be consumed but not killed by the fire of God, for somebody to be brought into the same relationship that Jesus had with the Father and the Spirit. What does it appear to be to the crowd that's watching? In verse 13, you guys look drunk. Are you guys drunk? <laughs> you seem drunk. Well, it's nine in the morning, and you guys are drinking. Now they're not from Bend, so that would be unthinkable. but Now here's what's crazy. I won't go real far on this, but apparently, apparently, something about being empowered and filled by the spirit of God is similar to being drunk on wine. OK? So wine's a depressant. It doesn't make us all depressed, it makes us happy because it limits our view of reality, right? That's why white guys think we can dance after a couple drinks, right? (laughs) The Spirit of God does something similar but in a totally different way. It fills us with joy, he fills us with joy, and lowers our inhibitions and lowers our fears Because we know that we are perfectly loved and accepted by our Father. And so we are going around given this gift of freedom. Where we are able to be who we are, so to speak. To not have to be phony or fraud or put up some sort of weird religious facade that we are actually able to be vulnerable and real and love other people and let other people love us in a way that, like, you kind of have to be drunk to do normally. Do you know what I mean? So we're not talking about stumbling and slurring and getting stuck to a wall and stuff like that. It's saying there's such incredible freedom and fearlessness, this deep joy that is not Normal. And so the fire of God rests upon them. And instead of making us stupid, it opens our eyes to a bigger reality of the beauty of the gospel. So they hear wind, they see fire, and third and finally, in the last few minutes here, they begin to speak in other languages. Tongues can be translated languages as well. Okay, so some of us have had experience with Christians who speak in tongues. And even Throughout the scriptures, where Paul and others talk about <coughs> speaking in tongues, praying in tongues, the assumption is that when tongues are spoken, languages are spoken, um, that people can't understand. So Paul talks about why that's not as valuable as uttering words that people can understand. Now Paul also champions tongues and says that he prays in tongues more than all of us, and um, and it's something worth paying attention to. But what I wanna say is that what's happening here in Acts 2 seems to be a very unique and in a lot of ways distinct occurrence of tongues, even compared to what's, what's normal in the Bible. And so um, the main difference is that again, Paul assumes that most of the times when you speak in tongues, nobody can understand. But what happens here is that when these guys speak in tongues, they are understood. And people from all these different races, cultures, nationalities, and languages are able to hear the good news. Now, when they speak in tongues, what are they speaking about? Verse 11 tells us, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues or our own languages. So this diverse, eclectic, multi-ethnic gathering is happening where people had one faith but many different languages and cultures. And at the end of the day, every single person has heard the good news about Jesus in their own language. Okay, so this is a unique and distinct moment in the story of God and specifically in the way tongues are talked about. Here's what I love about this. When the gospel was first proclaimed, when the story of Jesus was first preached, it was preached in every language at once. That's what's happening on Pentecost. As God the Father and God the Son pour out God the Spirit into the church, into this early community of Christ followers, That gospel, that message that's declared, is spoken in every single language at the same time. So, by a deliberate miracle, at the first Pentecost, Christian Pentecost, God makes sure that no language, no culture, no race, or no ethnicity has precedence over any other within the Christian faith. It is a beautiful and astounding event, if you think about it. That there's nobody within Christianity among the 2.2 billion Christ followers in the world today that can say, we are the original. That it started with us, in our country, in our culture, in our language. From day one in what is many times called the birthday of the church on Pentecost, the gospel is proclaimed in every single language. The whole known world receives this good news at the same time in their own language. And this beautiful thing begins to unfold. And so what's interesting is that this is one of the things that sets the Christian faith apart from any other religion or worldview almost every other religion, has some sort of original, protected, sacred, not just set of doctrines or narrative that they hold to, but actually the medium is sacred, that the language, or the culture. And so, for, for example, Muslims would say that the Quran really can't be translated into any other language. Now of course there's English and other versions of it, but they would say that's just kind of the best attempt to capture, but if you really want to understand the Quran, you need to learn Arabic. It's kind of this a culture that's been baptized, so to speak, and really you have this worldwide Islamic culture that we're talking about all the time in the world we live in, okay? But beca- because of Pentecost, that is not true of Christianity that there is no one language or culture or race or color that can claim that this thing started with us or that our version is the best or that we know how to do it better than anyone else. On the first day of this new era of the mission of God, the pouring out of the Spirit on the church, the gospel is proclaimed to every nation in every language at the same time. And it's this beautiful thing. So in many ways, the gospel has an opportunity to be received by every culture. It's spoken in the languages that are there and we, they get to hear the good news. But the same thing, at the same time, the gospel also confronts every culture. And it comes in to any race or nationality, your country or civilization and says, there's things here that have to be conformed to the story of Jesus. And so what that means for us, and I'm deeply convinced of this, is that if the story of Pentecost is true, if the gospel of Jesus was actually pronounced to all languages at the same time, then followers of Jesus should make up the most Diverse, inclusive communities on the face of the planet. Because there's nothing exclusive here. Nothing that we can claim culturally that makes us superior to anybody else. Our story is shaped by Jesus and his kingdom, not by where we were born or where we're from, or what we look like, or any of that. So I know this, is, this confronts some of us. But I'm convinced it's almost like Jesus had a hunch that one day some of his followers might confuse Christianity for nationalism. And when he breathes his spirit into the church, he does so in such a crazy, beautiful way that if we're paying attention, we won't fall into that mistake. And so it's cultural diversity, ethnic diversity, all of that to be celebrated. obviously, we live in Bend, Oregon, 91% white, and it's easy to talk about because it feels like we just kind of dealt this hand. But what it would mean is that even in a wonderbred city like this, that followers of Jesus would be the first to cross cultural and ethnic lines wherever we find them in life. That followers of Jesus, recipients of this Pentecost heritage, would be the ones that where we see somebody different than us, who lives differently than us, believes differently than us, looks differently than us, that rather than moving away in fear, we, drunk on the power of the Spirit, would move forward in joy and in love. Of course, it would start here on Sunday mornings as the body of Christ gathers, but of course then it would extend to your work, to your school, to your neighborhood, or wherever you find yourself. Followers of Jesus should be the first to cross racial and cultural and whatever other social barriers we would find. But it also happens to deal with the way we think about the greater body of Christ. And for many of us, um, it's not such a big deal in the Northwest, but if you're from other places in the country, then denominations and different traditions and all that can be incredibly divisive, right? Like in the Bible Belt, all the churches are still called First Baptist or this Lutheran or that Presbyterian or that Methodist, right? In the Northwest, nobody cares, so we just come up with a cool word and name our church that because nobody even knows what the difference between a Methodist and a Presbyterian is up here, right? But we do all have categories for our kinds of Christian. And we do tend to be exclusive in the way we think about who's in the family or who's on the team. And if Pentecost is true, then it blows open a bunch of that stuff as well. So all the ways that churches get divided over the style of worship, all that stuff, right? If Pentecost is true, that, that story should, should overcome all that stuff. I was going to say Trump. You just can't say that anymore, can you? So I was at a pastor's conference a couple years ago, and there was a pastor, a well-known guy, a lot of you might have read, John Ortberg who was talking about the beauty of a room of thousands of pastors from all different denominations and traditions and cultures. And he was saying, this is like a taste of heaven. It's like a beautiful picture of we have all these divisions on the church, in the church here on earth, but one day in heaven, around the throne of Jesus, we're gonna see all these different faiths and or, you know, traditions of faith can, can, can combined together around Christ. And he goes, Ortberg goes, I think of it almost like each denomination has their representative and they we're sitting there at the table. And so you have the Presbyterians there represented by John Calvin. And you have the Lutherans there represented by Martin Luther. And you have the Methodists there represented by John Wesley. And you have Calvary Chapel there represented by Chuck Smith. And you have the Baptists there represented by Jesus. <laughs> and, of course, he means it in good cheer, and it's funny, and I grew up Baptist, and a lot of you do too, did, too. Um, but the funny part is, going, no, we, we see all of ourselves, this whole global 2.2 billion body of Christ, filled by the same Spirit, given the same mission. And if it looks really different from place to place and church to church and body to body and tradition to tradition, that's great. Not everybody needs to worship the same way we do. Or use the same kind of dialect or faith language that we do. Like we don't have to try to like convert each other to our version of Christianity. There's this beautiful vision starting at the really the birthday of the church, that we would be one with Christ as he is one with the Father and the Spirit. In a couple weeks, Ken and I have the privilege to go away for two days with other pastors from all over Bent. We're going to spend two days out in eastern Oregon um, primarily relationally connecting to one another but also calling our attention to what does God want to do in Central Oregon? And how can each of our churches, even though we have different styles and all that kind of stuff, we have the same God, same spirit, same mission. How might we collaborate to get on board with what Jesus is doing around us? I love stuff like that. Or Presbyterians, Baptists, Lutherans, non-denominationals, whatever, can all get together around the same thing. In many ways, I'll close with this, Pentecost is the reversal of the curse of Babel. If you remember Genesis 11, the story starts with a whole bunch of people who speak one language, and it ends where nobody can understand each other. Pentecost reverses the curse of Babel. The story starts with a whole whole bunch of people in one room and they speak many languages, and at the end, they're unified. They are one, and everybody understands something. On Pentecost Sunday, we celebrate that the curse of Babel has been reversed. And when we talk about joining Jesus on his mission at home, in our backyard, and around the world, we're talking about that mission, of undoing the effects of the curse. And so it changes us. And the stories that we're telling every week are simply ways that people are doing this, saying, here's what it would look like to join Christ in undoing the curses of Babel, of division, of sin, of poverty and pain and suffering, and instead proclaiming and practicing the life-giving fullness of the gospel of Christ. And since none of us can claim that our version of Christianity, or that our culture, or that our language, or that our story is superior to any others, I'm convinced that this story, if it's true and if we believe it, will create the kind of people that the world needs most. People who will bring peace, people who will bring justice, people who care about things like Black Lives Matter, people who care about Syrian refugees and, and Hispanic immigrants, people who care about orphans at Warm Springs, people who care about the least of these among us. That's what the story will do. So Holy Spirit, we thank you for the incredible gift that we have of being yours, being a temple for you to dwell, being that point where heaven meets earth. And I thank you for this church, Antioch, and every person that's part of it. Thank you that this isn't just about us and a place where we go to find a church that meets our style or our needs or our preferences but it's actually about something way, way bigger than us at all. That we're here because of what you want to do in the world. You're reversing the curse. You're raising the dead. You're making all things new. And we long to see your redemptive work start here within us, within our hearts, within our relationships to each other, and then to explode out of this room and into the whole area here. And so, Spirit, we want to simply say to you today, we need your power to live the life that you've called us to. We need your presence to live out the faith that we've received. We need your guidance. We need your conviction. We need your counseling. We need your help in order to join Jesus on his mission. And so, Spirit of God, we ask that whatever walls or barriers we have, individually or corporately, that would cut off your flow of power into our lives, we pray that you would break those down. And that we would find ourselves open and receptive to whatever it is that you want to say and do in us and through us. We're saying yes to you this morning, God. In the name of Jesus, we pray.